Welcome to For the Record. I'm Valerie Chan, the founder of Platform PR. Today's episode will be the first in a two-part panel discussion in which we speak with four leading industry vets, both practitioners and legal tech marketers, to get their take on some of the challenges and successes they've experienced working with repurposing technologies and messaging to different audiences. In the first episode of this series, we'll be discussing the trends that we've been noticing before taking questions from our audience members in our second episode. One of the things I've been noticing over the last five years, especially as eDiscovery has pivoted into helping more general counsel, working with IT, as well as having the C-suite more involved, comes a very interesting landscape for marketing to all the different buyers and buyer personas within a corporation. So thought this might be helpful, especially for those coming up to speed on kind of a complex area, as well as hear from some practitioners and advisors and some of the challenges that they are experiencing and hearing from their clients. And in terms of the regulatory landscape, especially on the privacy side, it's become a very interesting landscape on how how we give counsel to our clients to work in this environment, as well as the clients on the crisis side. So on that note, I want to introduce you all to our players. We've got Mary Mack, who is the head of EDRM and has really kind of re-energized and shaped the EDRM to what you're seeing today and is a very active organization. We've got Manu, who's amazing and a legal tech pro. She worked with us on the privacy side and at the compliance side. Her background is B2B marketing, and she has worked with a variety of companies outside of the legal tech space. We've got Nikki Benvenuti, who has her own agency on the demand gen side, as well as she helps with marketing and marketing strategy. Her clients come from a wide variety of B2B and B2C industries, but she also works with regulated clients. I thought it might be helpful to hear from an agency perspective what the implications are from an implementation side, as well as Joy, who is this amazing jack-of-all-trades, and she has a wealth of knowledge both in helping with the LA chapter of ACEDS and with the work that she does over in PARC. So on that note, I will leave the practitioners to talk about some of the trends and some of the insights they're seeing, as well as try to have an engaging conversation with all of you on what's worked, what doesn't work, what should we be aware of as marketers, and how can we really help the industry? So on that note, I'm going to ask Mary Mack to kick us off. Well, thank you. All right. I think all of you have seen the news around compliance and enforcement and regulatory. I mean, there's not a day goes by that the Wall Street Journal doesn't have some kind of either investigation or enforcement or in the the EU, same way. What we're finding is, is that clients, particularly in the regulated industries like financial, they're, they're having compliance productions to the various regulatory agencies with, and we're gonna talk about privacy after this, with personal information. They're, some of the agencies are drilling down into that, so the compliance is bleeding into privacy, and privacy is having quite an outside 
impact on that. We're finding that people are stretching the use cases for their technology that they've invested in for, for e-discovery into the compliance area, into the privacy area. And Val, you have some thoughts on this, don't you? I do. On the privacy side, and, and Joy, feel free to kick in as well, to, to jump in if, if there are any trends that we have, haven't com- actually talked about in depth. But on the privacy side, what we found, especially with companies either in biopharmaceuticals or, say, direct business-to-consumer pharmaceuticals, is that some of the regulatory agencies are coming together to really share information about companies. And companies are trying to parse through what that actually looks like. So what does it mean for their data? How are the companies actually marketing the data? Does it impact any sort of consumer protection that actually might be happening? And so from a multiple agency standpoint, because of the information that they share, and they they're, they actually, theoretically, they're not supposed to, I mean, they share information where they're at in the process, at least what we're finding, especially with some of the companies that we've talked to, uh, it becomes a more interesting type of investigation. So having that in mind from a marketing standpoint really helps to understand, okay, what are the variables, you know, attached? What are the client client thinking through or what are the company thinking through? And who are the who are the potential buyers or how do how do the corporations actually think through it because there's multiple parties involved. And that's something to, to think about. The other thing on the privacy side is People don't really think about contracts, but contracts are now being renegotiated in a variety of, of ways, primarily because the policies within contracts are not up to date. And so, you know, supplier agreements are actually being renegotiated. And I know they're being renegotiated because of SVB, but privacy plays a role in that. And then the need for technology that can handle jurisdiction-specific regulations automatically only because privacy laws are changing pretty pretty regularly. So there's a lot of back-end manual work that actually needs to happen, especially if you're working on production. So thinking about what that looks like, thinking about not just the, the legal side, but also the IT side and the implications are super important to think through, okay, how do I take this into consideration when selling into companies? How do I message this? Is there, is there something very useful from an education standpoint that we need to consider? As, as well as um, when it comes to marketing specifically, and maybe Nikki and Manu can touch upon this, but there's a new trend or it, it's actually been happening pretty much for a, a while, but it's, it's starting to become more and more of a thing, which is dark patterns. Companies have been trying to market to either businesses like smaller businesses or consumers and the impact of predatory practices is becoming more and more of a thing. And so trying to understand the lens in what that, what and how companies are doing that and what the implications are, and either how you could help from a technology side or a services side is super important. So, Joy, do you want to jump in? There's a few things that, that 
both Mary and Valerie had mentioned, which first of all, from your perspective, I always think about who you're selling to. And when we talk about corporations and people who think about these things, it's funny because it's that all, the multi-tiers that are in corporate organizations that run compliance from an operational standpoint to the leadership that is responsible for the compliance department are so far apart in understanding how and what happens in 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 order to, to do that job, right? So whenever we talk about who you're selling to in a large corporation, especially some that are part of what I have found, the $2 billion roundtable where they do a lot of set-asides for minority and women-owned business type of spending, that there's a lot of business partnerships. That's the mentality. They are great. And when working with them, they treat you like you're part of them. But but that you look at that, the services are actually in the support are coming from third parties. And so looking at who and what organizations are actually providing specific whistleblower line monitoring to compliance investigations, to escalating that to the software that's running and tracking the levels of, of issues for internal investigations. I mean, they're isolating things that are related to different regions, as you mentioned, or different levels, like what involves an executive versus what is maybe more internal manufacturing issues are happening on the floor. But they have grades of or levels of hierarchy or ranking and its importance to the organization, but they still have to deal with it. So when you're talking about selling, you have to one hone in on what is your persona, right? And who's actually being bothered? Who can't sleep at night? Right? Who who are you really selling to there? So I think when we talk about selling to corporations, it's not just the executive management who actually is the person who's going to approve the purchase. It's the people whose day-to-day um, is interrupted or they don't have enough staff. They've been told to cut 10%. And they're like, how am I going to do that? It's going to be with technology. It's going to be with software. It's going to be with automation. So I think there's a lot out there for businesses. And again, the concept of you're trying to sell something which is really a value. And I think people lose that. They sell to sell instead of selling to provide value to people. So I think when you talk about corporations, they're looking for that partner. And being a business partner, they, like I said, they treat you as one of their own. So it's a great mentality to kind of frame it as you're looking out for them and you want them to, to be in a better position. Privacy is is now part of just about every e-discovery review for different reasons. It could be, you know, educational or it could be healthcare or it could be financial. But having that overlay and then having with it security requirements and, and breach, and we'll be getting into that. But our e-discovery team has been or community has been using regular exp- expressions. We're beginning to use more machine learning and AI to detect these things. And so we do have something to offer the privacy professionals in terms of expertise you know, across the, across the line. Manu, would you like to go ahead? One of the things that's good to keep in mind, because we said security and then privacy is also involved when we're working with mature organizations, big corporations, top AMLA firms, at this point in time, most of these decisions are made at a steering committee. And so there are multiple stakeholders with multiple different personas involved. And so just because one of your personas or marketing playbooks works for the DPO, data protection officer does not necessarily mean that at the same table you're trying to sell to is another stakeholder that has different concerns keeping him or her awake at night. So the 
very nuanced dance that you have to play when you're presenting to all the various functions of a mature organization and not turn one off and get everybody, you know, the lowest or most common denominator is is very precise and should be something that we that you keep in mind and those side conversations individually will make a big difference because they're kind of all merging together in Venn diagrams. Interestingly enough on the personas and alienation of different different stakeholders Rachel C who's at the EEOC is experimenting with ChatGBT to check her emails for tone. And, and so she gave me the idea to you know, prepare for this panel by using the ChatGPT to say, give me a message that will resonate with a corporate buyer that will not alienate an outside counsel about, you know, e-discovery technology. And I'll be darned if it didn't come come through with something that was you know, it was like a nice statement that I didn't think would would alienate. And I put it through again and again and again and had had a little bit of fun with it. But I have seen in rooms where someone will say, yeah, with this AI technology, you're not going to need your lawyers anymore. And there goes the budget book right there. It's like, boom, it's done. And you have to you have to back out the statement. So back back to you. Oh, security? Okay, sure, sure. Okay, so we were talking about privacy before, and one of the elements of privacy Illinois kicked in with was biometrics. You know, that's sort of like, you know, the nose under the tent. So add that to the security multi-factor. I mean, usually the extra factor ha- has something to do with your iris, your thumbprint, your face, or something, some form of, of biometrics. So with privacy regulations on biometrics in its infancy, using the multi-factor, you have to be very, very careful which ones you use and be able to switch them out if you need to. So we've got a huge increased attack surface with our work from home and all of the collaborative apps that are going, nobody thinks twice about sending files all over the place. Alex Jones gifted us <laughs> with one of the most lovely, like inadvertent production slash security breaches, <laughs> privacy incidents that you could ever, ever want to see. And so it's got a lot of good good stories in there. There's also a new trend for multi-channel um, compromises. And that's where where something might come in as an email to you and then a voicemail, and then they try to social engineer. And they don't do that in bulk. They do that for the very special data. And who's got more very special data than us? I mean, we've got the crown jewels. We've got the, the data that's in dispute. We've got the investigations, the M&As, and all of that. So we're worth it. We're worth that kind of a... Uh, multi-channel compromise. The other thing I'll, I'll, I'll add to this is NIST is doing their cybersecurity framework again, and this is going to roll out. So it's going to feel a little bit like 2006, 2015 with the federal rules. There'll be a little bit of a run-up, and then they're really going to focus on supply chain and third-party liability. And who is supply chain? Legal, 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 legal tech, legal tech. We've got to pay attention to the supply chain that's going to be in that, in the NIST. So at least privilege access 
is something that I think when we all looked at Twitter and they said half of the company had direct access to the to the data in there. Sometimes it's that way in legal as well. It's not as well stratified. The more sophisticated practices have that stratification of access, but this is something that that our community can can bring bring to the practice. So, yeah. You know the linkages, the interoperability that that you can have with a partner. Like once you get a workflow going and it's a multi-organizational workflow. So that's that's part of supply chain, but it's also if you're delivering a service as a subcontractor or a con a contractor, then you you need to comply with the same or similar rules than than the actual entity mm -hmm. that's being governed because they will be on the hook for your lapses if if you if you lapse yeah so uh, e discovery trends there one of the, the trends EDRM is doing a refresh 2.0 it's available on our our website the starting doc, document will be a project to to revamp that that's getting quite a bit of attention uh, we've got some cross-platform dedupe or or duplicate identification I should say out there and many other many other things. The industry is going to continue to consolidate. I think that's pretty obvious with the economic headwinds and the announcements that we've, we've seen at the show. And at the same time, we're going to see emerging the new, the new technologies, especially, the, as we said earlier, the, the chat GPT. Competence is an issue, but it's interestingly not a corporate not as high an issue for the corporate folks as it is for the law firms and the service providers. Mm -hmm. The survey that EDRM sponsored with eDiscovery today, the state of the industry is stratified by your corporate, your, you know, your law firm, consultant, government, that kind of thing. So you can see what's more important to people. Also, everybody says TAR's not being used, but that survey says only 7% have never used TAR. It, it's just not being used on everything. And that's what everybody are, is bemoaning. But the fact of the matter is, it's over the threshold. So now it's, a, it's in. So now it's a matter of like, you know, expand it. It's uh, the message that lawyers and law firms and people are not using TAR is, is an incorrect one in my view. And I don't know how you feel about that, Joy. You know, I think the people who are now starting to use it don't call it TAR. Right, they call it email threading, or they call it clustering, or I want to do textual deduplication. So they don't even identify with with it being labeled tar, which I think is interesting. But also, again, now we are starting to get smaller firms who really need to utilize the technology. So I think we're also expanding our customer base or people who we're selling to, that you have solo and smalls who are being turned to because corporations are trying to find ways to kind of stratify their spend on outside counsel. So they might give more local or smaller cases or regional cases to smaller firms or diff a diversified set of firms. And again, looking towards also my minority-owned, women-owned law firms, too, I think are on the rise. I see that. But the utilization of technology and analytics with those smaller organizations are more necessary because they don't have 20 associates to go or a library, a librarian who's going to go help do the research. They're going to have to start leveraging 
the AI or the analytics in order to find things. And I think that's why everyone's so excited about the concept of the generative AI, because now they can ask it, go find me more documents like this, right? So if you hit the floor, there are some companies, and I think it's interesting that some companies are actually marketing it as story builders. Mm -hmm. That's what the attorneys are looking for. They need help building that story or confirming their fact pattern or whatever that is, or go find the supporting documents to this, this set of, of, of causes of action, right? But they're framing it as a story builder and that just so many people are like, have you seen this, have you seen that? And they were attracted to the word story builder or story. So anyway, that's I think a good marketing thing right there. Yes, Joy, that actually had a question for you. You know, you mentioned how folks are referring to it as story builder or email threading, very much a marketing comms conundrum to deal with. When you're talking about it, do you think that tar, AI, story builder, email threading, all of these together can be used interchangeably? And do you think that perhaps the um, you know knee-jerk reaction or hesitation when you talk about AI to some lawyers is misplaced because they probably are already using it. They're just not thinking that your email threading is AI. So they're not interchangeable because, again, it's functionally different when we talk yep. about email threading versus maybe textual deduplication or, you know, finding the duplicates. They're saying, I keep seeing the same document over and over. I'm like, well, it's not really the same. It's textually the same, but it came from different people or it's a different mailbox. So again, it's about their use, right? What are they trying to do with it? They don't care what you call it. Just help them stop reviewing 6,000 documents and they can only have to review 800 because you've done email threading and textual duplication to identify what's truly unique. I said the word you should use is duplicative. It's duplicative. It's not duplicates. It's there's They're different. So I do think that one, there is a problem with the vocabulary we use because I think early on we're trying to explain a very complex thing, TAR, AI, in a matter of an hour if we're lucky to get them to sit for CLE. So you're trying to generalize versus at some point we started saying, you know, forget everything else. Let's just sell one thing. Let's just sell the email threading because that seems to be what they just, they understood immediately what that impact that would have on them. And then it was like, okay, do you want analytics? No. Do you want email threading? Yes. Okay, so just so you know, it's going to say on the bill analytics. Okay, just so you know, that's what that is. So, you know, it was kind of like you had to like, you're not eating carrots or bro broccoli, you're eating little trees. So, you know, like that, how do you sell that to them? And and it's true, right? So anyway, I do think that as we go, on, go forward, people think the next generation of lawyers are more technical in, in our space, but I found that it's not true. They may be, they're actually making it worse, right? They're bringing all the Macs. So, okay, but, but they're, <laughs> I love Apple, but again, but, you know, just because they understand how to use the more current technology, they don't understand how the technology is utilized in a corporate setting or in their client's situation. If they're a, soft, they're a software programming company, they don't understand, right, code. They still don't understand those things, which they represent, right? They're supposed to advise and counsel. So I don't think that the next generation is going to solve that problem. So I think we have to help them with the vocabulary and kind of hone in on how to use these algorithms or these AI tools. Like I start to put in a couple words here and there, mash it in there, right? And and help them just kind of try and digest it, but focus on the outcome, which is you'll have 30% less documents to read, 30% less costs on your budget. You know, those are things that they're they're hearing and they register for them. Yeah, I actually put on my other sheet, SME, right? So, you know, when we have repetitive practices like at, at 
my bigger firms I was at, we had a certain group, like the SEC group or the white collar group. But every case, like every partner ran their cases slightly different, but they each had a workflow and they each had more in common than they had different. So just kind of acknowledging it and then plugging in and saying, hey, I know your workflow. This is a repetitive thing you do every time. Here's where the technology sits. Now, here's the budget. I had a very complex spreadsheet that you know made you go look cross-eyed. But after we did it one time with them, they were modeling it. They were saying, well, actually, if we use whatever, and they, they understood, they're very smart people, right? You just got to give them the tools to do so. so. Great. Then let's hear from Nikki. Um, and one thing that I would just add is like, you know, there's a lot of talk about what's being done, you know, with AI within the context of law firms. And, you know, one thing that we do as an agency is that we actually market to the law firms. And, you know, and if these are the types of clients that you are trying to reach, you know, we need to think about AI in different contexts. So there's both generate, there's like three types of AI. There's generative AI, which is contextual AI, which is used you know, to generate messages such as G- chat GPT. There's analytics AI, which is more used to understand, you know, whether it's, you know, a set of data that people are providing zero party directly or first party as a result of their behaviors once they get to your website or your social media channels or whatnot and then how exactly they're behaving. But then also decisional AI, which I think is going to be the most transformative in how we market. I think that a lot of the ways that we market nowadays are going to be seen as legacy systems with old school cookies and, you know, um, you know, that violate a lot of the new privacy laws. I think that what we're going to be seeing is a lot more behavioral trees that are going to, you know, machine learning and AI that's going to, you know, really, you know, take limited data that's provided from first party sources and how people are behaving, but then actually, um, you know, create predictive indices of how, you know, people are going to react to a particular, you know, white paper or, you know, a particular seminar that they're invited to or, you know, particular events on the basis of population data and how similar, you know, people in similar positions have reacted. I also think, you know, know, we're talking about it in the law firm, Office of the General Counsel, you know, legal ops perspective, but going back to how does IT look at it, right? How do other, like if you're trying to get into, you know, different areas that are influential to legal security and, and that sort of a thing, or privacy and compliance, like having a more analytical approach because going back to the AI conversation, the decision matters a lot to IT people, right? And, and what that actually means. And if you're able to say, say you have, and I'm just going to use an example, you have a technology platform in, in eDiscovery, you're trying to, you're trying to actually use it to be, you know, to be a multi-purpose tool. And say, for example, you do data discovery on the IT side, and you're and you you want to try to find all the different pieces and all the different pieces of data within the organization, structured and unstructured, the IT folks are looking at it from, okay, is this technology going to automatically find that information for me at the ready, right? Which is which is super important. Can can it help me identify areas of vulnerability and make suggestions, which some of the traditional legal tech tools are just kind of, I'll be, you know, really honest, like it's still nascent on this side, primarily because of the, you know, the way that lawyers think. But on the IT side, um, as well, and the broader industry, it's, 
it's a lot more sophisticated on how they actually look at tools and use tools because there's not the legal concern. I was just going to say that it's interesting because I love IT. My roles have always reported up to the CIO in, in litigation support or practice support. But there is a cultural difference difference in the discipline of IT and the discipline of, of legal. And the way that, for example, how a product comes in the door and how and, and how we approach IT if legal pushes a product, how that's accepted or actually first impressions, how, the, how that is. Sometimes we could be met with resistance because all of a sudden we're going to make a decision that's going to blow up their plans and their strategic plan that was developed last year, right? That operationally we should have put that on the project list and it should have been evaluated, right? There's a process. So the two dynamics of fire and structure are obviously going to counter each other in regards to how IT lets us in a way look at new technology. We have technology departments that are some are very forward thinking early adopters and then you have some that are the laggards who are really hesitant because we finally got our network stable, we finally have things going here and now you want to bring what? And that's why I think the evolution of cloud has really been important to that development of us bringing in tools, proving it, and then saying, you know, we really do want to kind of see how great this is. It's kind of like if we could just use exchange or, you know, exchange the, the preserve in place, preservation in place, that'd be great. You know, all of a sudden, once it grows on them, they understand it. But I think the way I can get to IT is resources because they'll say, we don't have people who are going to pull all these mailboxes for you, Joy, in the matter of two days. Can we have a month? I'm like, no, we have to respond in 15 days. So resources, the impact on IT, that's how we found the the best way in the door is we're trying to figure out how we can still meet these objectives without impacting your headcount, your the, the responsibilities of your current headcount, because they just dump it on some people who manage exchange and daily mailbox to all of a sudden be exporting out 5,000 mailboxes. So it's just, uh, from my perspective, that's what IT has been for me. Yes, exactly. And to piggyback on that, when we were talking about the, at the end of the day, it's persona, it's the words you choose and to make a a good impression and perception of your product, your technology for all the stakeholders. And sometimes, for example, say in the information governance world, you're trying to sell your solution when you're selling it to legal because they might shy, you know, they just like we said, like the, you say analytics and their eyes might gloss over, but you say email threading, they'll be like, oh, yeah, same, same thing happens. So if you simplify your language because you want to get legal on board, you're tech stakeholders will actually perhaps get a completely complete misperception of your solution because they'll think, oh, this is too simplistic. But your, tech, your tech stakeholders, your IT stakeholders want to hear the complex words, want to hear the complex features, and want to see that more mature product. So tweaking that perception of the same product that relevant, that's, the, that's your persona nuances, for each of those audiences is, is very much a dance. And um, my encouragement is whenever you have multiple stakeholders involved, make sure you have private one-on-one -on -one conversations and your conversations, your presentations aren't always to everybody together because those nuances matter and, and you get that alienation situation that will, will do you harm. Awesome. Well, thank you all for those insights. I think this is a good place to break. As marketers, it's always important to remember to ask ourselves if we really got our audience's pain points and their value propositions. Our thanks goes to our guests, Mary Mack, Manu Rizavi, Nikki Benvenuti, and Joy Muro for their stellar insights and fantastic conversation. 
In part two of this series, we'll be turning to the audience to answer some of the questions that other practitioners had related to marketing their products to different audiences. Until next time, I'm your host, Valerie Chan. Thanks for listening to For the Record.